When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham in partnership with Naked Scientists. This time, as Tim Peake prepares for his flight to the International Space Station, we'll talk to Britain's first astronaut. It just feel rather strange, like I've been a pariah almost, an embarrassment. Oh, please, just let's see if we can forget Helen Sharman. Just shut up and she'll go away. And then we can have our future first British astronaut and, and, uh, and it'll all be all right again. So yes, somehow it feels as though I'm, I'm, I'm OK now. We'll ask which internet entrepreneur has the biggest rocket and why space is bad for your physical and mental health from the European Space Agency's head of space medicine. Being in a tin can for a very long period of time uh, with limited resources, that may also have a very significant impact on, on, on the mental well-being. Our studio guests are science journalist and broadcaster Sarah Crudus and David Wade, an engineer who insures space rockets from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, one of our supporters. Welcome to you both. Now, I'm sure we're all excited about the Brit Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station. Will it make a difference to Britain in space. What do you reckon, David? I think it will. I think we're starting to see a renewed interest in space in the UK. Um, and I think it's great. You know, a few years ago, the industry did this space uh, innovation and growth strategy report. And I think it's been really good at showing how good the space industry is for the UK. That's all about the economy, isn't it? It's growth, it's jobs. But do you think it's a bit more than that, Sarah? I think it's about igniting passion in especially young people because I know it's a cliche, but children's are, children are our future. And I think um, NASA gets its PR um, very, very spot on most of the time, whereas ESA sometimes doesn't shout about it in the same way and neither does the UK space industry. And the UK has a great space industry. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg and it's going to ignite passion. It's going to inspire people. And it's just hugely exciting to be British and know that you can grow up in England and potentially become an astronaut. It's not just a preserve of the Americans. So... I think um, from a passion point of view, it, it's going to really do a lot for the UK space industry. Sounds like your application's in the post. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's true, when I grew up, I grew up and I thought um, space was all about America. I thought I had to become American if I wanted to do anything to do with space. Um, I remember researching how to get American citizenship, but it's not the case. You can definitely have a career in the space industry in the UK. David, let's talk about rockets then. Uh, a lot of new companies getting involved in space. I mean, we know about SpaceX. Uh, we've got Orbital, Virgin Galactic, now Blue Origins. I mean, you insure these things. You have to know the insides outs of these things. And you used to be a, you know, an, an engineer. engineer. You are a, pro- you are a, 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 a proper a, engineer. Um, you're a rocket man, yeah. Um, <laughs> is this exciting? 
it is exciting. Um, you know, we're seeing the industry develop in completely different ways to what we expected a few years ago. You know, the things that we ensure are the very large communication satellites, 6,000 kilograms at a time, launching on an Ariane 5 or a, an Atlas 5. Um, what we're now seeing is a whole range of new potential applications for satellites coming along. All of these CubeSats, companies like Planet Labs that are going to launch 300 CubeSats to image the Earth every day. And these are, what, 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres? Yeah, the Planet Lab ones are slightly bigger. They're three, three together, yeah, are three they? together yeah. in that one. So they're yeah, four or five kilogram satellites. But what these small satellites are capable of these days is fantastic. What we were missing in the puzzle was getting those small satellites to orbit quickly. And there's now something like 30 projects worldwide looking at small satellite launch vehicles. You're launching anything from a few kilograms up to maybe 500 kilograms. Well, the latest excitement involves this uh, rather phallic-looking Blue Origins launcher. Um, And as if to emphasise the point, the promotional video announcing the event couldn't be more macho. Owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Blue Origins is developing a reusable rocket to launch a crew capsule into space. And the video suggests it could carry space tourists on a parabolic flight. Ignition. And lift off. We see the capsule parachuting back to Earth and, crucially, the launcher landing vertically on legs. Perfect landing. We made history today. Now, who wants to go to space? Do you think he does milk triads? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the landing that's led to this whole, you know, this Twitter spat on uh, uh, between Jeff Bezos of uh, Blue Origins, this secretive company, and um, Elon Musk, founder of PayPal from secretive company SpaceX. And is this sort of, you know, mine's bigger than your rocket? Is this is this a, a race now? Are we in a private sector race? Well, I think it's certainly been seen as the next frontier uh, for, for you know, rather corny phrase but um, I think you know, Elon Musk from SpaceX has done a great job at showing that you can bring space out of the big governmental organisations yeah, and do it commercially and now the, the entrepreneur the internet entrepreneurs who've made their money are looking for the next big thing and they seem to be identifying space as that potential. Um, Jeff Bezos, as you say, uh, he's done a great job with Blue Origin. Let's not forget they had a failure. This is very difficult to do. They did have a failure with their first vehicle. Um, But what they achieved last last week in getting up to 100.5 kilometres, I think, so just breaking into the uh, boundary of space and then returning it safely to Earth was fantastic, really. It It was amazing to watch, actually, particularly... The landing. The landing feels it's slightly Thunderbird. Well, Dan Dare, I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's like feels an old-fashioned moon lander, or, isn't or it? On, or on strings. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, I mean, I really, when I watched it, I didn't know whether to be impressed or to laugh. Um, I, the, I did find the it. The shape fun. really bothers me. <laughs> I mean, to, to miss quite, Is it rocket shape? Miss, no, no, it's, it's the it's round end. To, to misquote Blackadder, it does look like an enormous thingy. I mean, there is a macho thing going on. Is there a, an element of, of vanity of corporate politics here? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there's politics behind it. But, I mean, certainly uh, there's a potential huge market there. So they're all fighting, um, you know, to be seen, to be doing uh, the best 
possible rocket. Um, I mean, there is a reason for the shape. I mean, let's not forget, you know, it's aerodynamic. The uh, the the fairing also allows sort of the centre of pressure on the rocket to move back to add to the stability of the rocket. So there is a reason why. So it's why that why were the it's, Apollo uh, rockets so really pointy, and why is this one really round? Well, this one this one's suborbital. Don't forget, this one's only going up to 100 kilometres. It's really flying in pretty much within the atmosphere. So um, it's more like, say, the nose of a plane, say, like a Boeing. Yes, yes. And that recoverability as it comes back down as well, which was something that they didn't have to worry about with the expendable rockets. Um, What's extraordinary about this? Well, you, we've all seen, the, I think, the videos of Virgin Galactic and this, this experience in a space plane. And then there's the X-Core space plane where you're essentially strapped in and go on this, this really <laughs> terrifying <laughs> ride up into space and back. This, we had the capsule shown in this animation up in space in this parabolic flight people standing and walking around in this council standing looking out of the window yeah let's not forget that's the promotional video (laughs) (laughs) is that feasible i mean is this could this happen you could do that could you yes and i I mean the virgin uh, galactic uh, video as well shows people moving around inside the uh, the vehicle once it's weightless i mean once you've exceeded that point of uh, when you switch the rocket engines off then you're going to be weightless and yes you could unstrap yourself and move around for a bit i do like the big windows in the uh, in the blue origin vehicle i mean the fact that you could go out and see the curvature of the earth i thought it looked i mean if i was going to sign up for one of these things this looked like the the best promotional video well it looked the best promotional video frankly (laughs) The most macho music. I would go for the blue origin. Do you know what I find so interesting is, um, especially working doing work out in Silicon Valley on this, is that um, where we are, a lot of the entrepreneurs out there and the investors are actually saying where we are with space now, or in terms of private companies, is the same as where we were with the internet back in the 1990s, the early 90s. So it is, you need that competition, you need that money being invested, and you need big companies going against each other so actually what's happening with Blue Origin and with SpaceX is incredibly good news for the space industry and we are going to see Space 2.0 as they call it with this new kind of emergence so I think it's a really exciting time. But as a journalist does the secrecy bother you because they're they're not easy to get to for for interviews I've quite good relationships with most of them. I think SpaceX are the most secretive out of the lot but I'm, I think I'm a big supporter of Virgin Galactic but I think in terms of PR they maybe should have stayed quieter for longer and then shouted about it when you've done something and I know um, uh, SpaceX Jeff Greeson who is the chief engineer there his motto is do it and then tell people about it so I, as a person who's passionate about space and wants the space industry to progress actually I agree with it that maybe you should keep your mouth quiet, get on with it and then shout about the achievements once you've done it because one of the worst things about the space industry can be hype and people expecting to be on Mars and on the moon by now and it's just not going to happen as quickly as you want it to. It is different though, isn't it, David, where we've seen the space agencies, particularly when NASA led the way on this, of doing everything in public, whether it's the successes or the failures. They've been seen on live television. Yes. And this is a very different way of doing things. It is, um, but people are interested. People want to know the story. You know, they want to see what's happening. And quite frankly, in a commercial business, you have to commercial business with a very long lead time before the first flights. You need bring those people along with you. You need to get them to buy into the project, which I think is exactly what's happening while but people are doing this early. when you've got a lot of private money, I think some people's idea is, well, I'll just do it. And then, because I think um, with NASA, the reason they shouted about it so much is because it was the Cold War, it was a space race, and they wanted to show their, you know, politics was better than the Soviets back then. So that was the reason for shouting. Although it still is the case. Yeah, I mean, you true. can You can watch quite an American everything thing. that's going on on the space station yes, right yeah. now. If you, I mean, it's really dull, but you can watch it. Yeah, And I think, I think in 
in the commercial sector, there's a lot about being the first first um, mover, the first yeah. one to the market. Yeah, you mentioned Space 2.0. I mean, I think that's a yeah. There's no one more than me who hopes that Space 2.0 is uh, is going to become reality. Hopefully. I think it's become a reality. Well, I, I think there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of expenditure, but let's not forget the internet uh, boom also had a, a bust at one that's stage, true. and it got it got. But the space space 2.0 um, already failed at the end of the 90s. That was when they first tried it. So I think this time they're going in um, with less expectations in terms of money and they're trying to do more for less. And you take planetary resources, for example, who want to mine asteroids, they're already making profit. Yeah, Which, sure, sure. I, I would call uh, the earlier one sort of Space 1.1. 1. 1. I think, <laughs> I think we're, we're really now we're at Space 2.0. Uh, yeah, I, yeah there, there's, there's only so many applications that you can launch, only, only so many satellites that you can launch, and there's a huge amount of money chasing you know, a limited market at the moment. I really do hope that those markets develop so and we see some new applications. Interestingly, there's more people wanting to invest than companies to invest in at the moment, which is quite an interesting shows there's oh. a lot of money around, um, which I think is quite an interesting. That's oh, yeah. quite interesting because it shows a vision. Yeah. Because normally investors I, I tend to be risk averse on the, on the whole. Um, and it yes, it shows a vision. It, it shows confidence in that it, it what these helped. companies are doing is going to work out. And obviously they will make money from it. <laughs> it rather helps though, doesn't it, in this case, that you've got people with an enormous amount of spare cash. Lying around. And who want to change the world? You've got mavericks who've already changed the world through the internet who want to make the world, people like Peter Diamandis, who wants to make the world a better place. And it's about abundance, it's about improving quality of life on Earth. And okay, it's not about making money, it's about like space as the potential, you know, when we become an off world species, like fully, that is revolutionary in terms of the evolution of humans. And I think people see it as beyond just making money, it's about improving quality of life on Earth. We're back to the immediate reality. And on the 15th of December, Britain gets its first astronaut for almost 15 years and the first British European Space Agency astronaut. Tim Peake will join the crew of the International Space Station for six months, working on science, medical and educational experiments. And if you haven't heard it yet, we spoke to Tim in our last podcast. But we've also been chatting to Britain's first astronaut, Helen Sharman, who blasted off in a Soyuz rocket with Anatoly Artbatsky and Sergei Krikalev to Space Station Mir in May 1991. Now, Helen was selected from more than 13,000 applicants in a public competition after responding to an advert that read, Astronaut wanted, no experience necessary. So how did she feel on board Mir among professional space-hardened cosmonauts? I felt very much like an astronaut, although I knew that I was um, the guest astronaut. My training was 18 months, but only 18 months. Toya and Sergei had trained for many years. They were making careers of their astronauts' training. I knew the basics. I could have survived up there if they'd all died. But I couldn't have fixed the whole spacecraft, unlike Sergei, who knew every single nook and cranny, nut and bolt. You know, he was amazing. Um, All the processes, procedures. I was not trained to actually steer the spacecraft. So when we had to do a manual docking, although I took some minor part in it, I had a periscopic television camera to operate so that Tolia could actually see what he was doing. He was the one who was trained as a pilot to actually, you know, use the the rocket engines and and physically manoeuvre us so that we were going a little bit up, a little bit down, sideways, just so that we made that docking port right. So, yes, I knew I was the, the third 
I was not the prime and I was not the engineer, but nonetheless, I was definitely a part of the crew. And part of sitting in that seat means you have to do stuff um, because the commander, the engineer, physically could not reach to do some certain operations. So there's no way you can just be a passenger, certainly not then on the Soyuz spacecraft. Nevertheless, you'd come a phenomenal way from hearing this advert in your car to flying to the Mir space station. Was it what you expected when you finally got to do it? Yes, actually flying, it was exactly how I'd expected because the training is so amazingly good. And while at times, yes, I was frustrated, probably wasn't the best um, uh, trainee that, um, that I could have been, Yes, the training was so good, it taught me what I needed to know, so I wasn't, you know, there was no need to be scared because there was no unknown to be scared of. I'd followed through the previous mission, so followed through exactly what Toyohiro Akiyama, who was sat in my seat the mission before me. So we know all the ins and outs of it, so there are no surprises on the day. And of course, you can't actually experience the launch or the smells or um, what it's going to be like cooped up for so long like that. When you look at the pictures of Mir, and at the time it seemed quite a large space station, but you look at pictures of you in that space station, it is very claustrophobic, or it looks very claustrophobic. Did it feel that? The space station is made up of long, thin modules, so rather like, actually, International Space Station now. In fact, the main habitation block is very, very similar. If you put your arms out sideways, you can just about touch both walls. But, of course, the walls on the outside... Um, I've then got loads of instrumentation on the inside, and so that's what makes it appear to be quite narrow. But they're very long, so each module is about 25 metres long. Join a couple together, you know, you've got 50 metres almost of a, sort of, a, of a length you can float through, or there's a, a bit of a hatch that gets annoyingly in the way of that length, so you can't just glide all the way through. And how much science did you get done? Were you tempted just to look out of the window all the time? Could you be focused? It would have been lovely, yes, to have looked out of the window even more. One of the bits of advice I was given, actually, by an American, John David Bartow, before I flew, and I asked him, you know, what would he have done differently? And he said, you know, he was so, so focused on getting a good job done, of repeating and repeating and repeating, he forgot to look out of the window, and he always regrets that. So I remembered that piece of advice. And, um, and, and you know, any, any spare moment I had, I made sure I had that view. Because, of course, your time is, is scheduled, so I couldn't really decide, you know what, am I going to do five experiments or only three today? You know what, I'll have the day off. You know, it was, it was scheduled for me. But there was plenty of spare time, as far as I could see, both during the Soyuz launch and particularly on board Mir. And I had a bedroom with a window in it. And so I made sure that, yes, um, in fact, on my last, last night in space... I asked if the other guys didn't mind if I actually kept the window open. Because, of course, you're going around the Earth 16 times a day, so it's light and dark. So when you want to be asleep, sometimes it's light. So they actually have to close this window. But I asked if they didn't mind because I really wanted to make best use. And I thought I'd just stay awake the whole night. I didn't, sadly, but I did go to sleep with this view of the Earth outside. And I'll always remember that. Do you feel that the narrative in government has changed now, completely changed, that once again they talk about Helen Sharman, Britain's first astronaut, in government and say, well, now we're looking forward to Tim Peake's mission. Do you feel that you've been accepted now? Something, I think, has changed very recently, and it's only really been in sort of these 
middle few sort of summer months of 2015 where I feel yes as though somehow I'm a bit more acceptable that it's okay for me to be on stage um, at the UK Space Conference um, that, that well they, they never had human spaceflight as part of the UK Space Conference before because you know, we, we weren't um, so we, we weren't funding it so yes it's suddenly it's it's okay it just feel rather strange like I've been a pariah almost an embarrassment oh please just let's see if we can forget Helen Sharma just shut up and she'll go away and then we could have our future first British astronaut and and, uh, and it'll all be all right again so yes somehow it feels as though I'm, I'm I'm okay now and are you looking forward to Tim Peake's mission really looking forward to Tim going he's such a, a lovely person and uh, and we wish him all all the luck he's going to be so wonderful for the country so we can again get behind somebody of course we you know we follow other astronauts but somehow there is still this thing about having the Briton somebody who's one of us somebody who's going to be talking to us about what he's doing in space in so many different ways and of course he's having a lovely long mission he'll be doing a spacewalk so he'll be the first Brit to do a spacewalk like that good luck Tim isn't that great? She's That's fantastic. First British astronaut and scientist, Helen Sharman. She was lovely, I should say. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely lovely. Uh, it's great. <laughs> Finally, she's being acknowledged yeah. by That's, the government. I, I've met Helen, and I don't understand why she hasn't got the confidence she should have, and maybe it's a female thing, but um, what she's done is incredible, and it annoys me when I see journalists who don't understand that Tim Peake isn't our first astronaut, and they, Helen has almost been forgotten, and it's great to see this year she... But at least Tim, actually, whenever you talk to Tim, and I heard him in a a press conference, uh, you know, a month or so ago, some a journalist actually said, you know, you're the first Brit in space. And to give Tim his credit, he said, no, I'm not actually. It's Helen. It's Helen Sharman. And they have embraced that. I think she was. It was great to hear her actually say, I've been considered a pariah. And it's great to see her re-embrace and reinserted into history that, yeah, Don't. actually remember... I mean, there have been Brits up on that space station yeah. before. Uh, well, uh, in terms of British-born. Yeah. But like you were saying earlier, Sarah, they all have got either dual American citizenship yeah, or they moved, yeah, they moved to the States. So, yeah, let's not forget our history. And She's a hero. nice to hear yeah. her. Yeah. I think, to be fair to the UK Space Agency... Well, they, they didn't exist. Repl- oh, no, so they didn't exist yeah, They then. didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got to be very but also now they gave her a platform at yeah. the space yeah. conference. She's very much included and I think in, that's in the narrative. Really but that's only changed, yeah. hasn't it, Dave? You've yeah, been around absolutely. in the space industry for once. You've been around the oh. block a few times. Uh, well, I, that's I, I, only changed in the last, well, I'd say year or so, really. Absolutely. And I, I remember Helen's launch. I remember um, you know, the first news broadcast after Helen's launch. She was the second story on the news. You know, the first yeah. story was Paul Gascoigne breaking his leg in some European football Oh, my but That just and, sums up the news oh. agenda, like, where STEM isn't seen as a priority. In space is a waste of money sometimes. It, it certainly that? wasn't. I think uh, social media these days means that, you know, this, this next mission with Tim Peake is going to be so much more successful in what, getting that message what's across. What's been apparent as well is that Helen's been around for a lot of a um, science museum, cosmonaut exhibition... Um, talks and openings and things like that is each time a Russian cosmonaut has spoken they have paid real credit to Helen Sharman they've praised what she did what sort of an astronaut she was how professional and the relationship that she obviously has and how they hold her in esteem is very very high and it's fantastic to hear Russia actually talk more highly of Helen than I'd heard the Brit, Brit, Britain talk about so Helen's achievements. Who would, who would like to hear more of that interview? Why have you got more? Have you got more? No, you'd have to listen. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's quite a good little plug there. Yeah. Yes, we've made um we've made a program. Actually, we've made several several radio programs. It's the Untold History of Brits in Space. It's called When Britain Had the Right Stuff. It's on BBC Radio 4. Oh, fantastic. On the 12th of December at 8pm and, and no doubt on uh, iPlayer, player but it's a podcast as well oh it's a podcast as well but um, no excuse then (laughs) yeah no no excuse and uh oh who is it presented by oh Twitchard! Yay! Uh, uh, We have another public service announcement here. Uh, On Sunday the 13th on the BBC World Service, you can listen to our programme presented by the fantastic Samantha Cristoforetti about the past, present and future of the International Space Station. So you said wow with her. Yeah. Oh, Um, Oh, wow, you're doing a show. I love the way she said, and Samantha Cristoforetti. She's got beautiful voice. I know, but it's just... Anyway, it's called A Home in Space. It's on at various times throughout the day in that slightly complicated world. World Service Way. Um, both programmes will also be on the BBC website for a month. I think they're both podcasts um, and we'll put links on our Facebook page and tweet them. It's a bit of a BBC Space Boffins takeover. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. Good. About time, about time. Uh, because, uh, oh yeah, and not least uh, that Tim Peake's launch. Uh, Richard will be doing the European Space Agency commentary. So if you are watching that launch and you go via the ESA site, you'll hear his dulcet tones. It has all got a little bit out of hand, really. It has really, yeah. Yeah. Um, In a moment, (laughs) in a moment, why space is bad for you and Christmas in space. This is the Space Boffins podcast. If you just look at body size and cancer, you might expect larger organisms to get more cancer, right? Because they have more cells. But That isn't the case. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're unravelling Pito's paradox. Animals like elephants have many more cells than humans and they live longer, yet they hardly ever get cancer. But why? Plus, revolutions in genetics and a magical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists, also on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll well we'll get our website sorted at some point. <laughs> we say I that think we said month. that for about uh, five years. I'm the same yeah. with mine because you never do your own publicity oh. shop. We do a yeah. lot. We do a lot on Twitter actually. Yeah, 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 Twitter. yeah. which is easy. It's 140 characters. It could be really good. Could, yeah, yeah, it could be really good. Anyway, yeah. um, previously on Space Boffins, actually, I should do that again tonight. Previously on Space Boffins, anyone <laughs> no, else? Is anyone better? better? You better <laughs> than you? You've got that kind of husky voice. Um, so could you? That's a hangover. Previously on uh, Space Boffins? Previously on Space Boffins. We I'll heard from... T- yeah. yeah. Previously on Space Boffins. That's better. Uh, we heard from Tim Peake about all the prodding, probing and uh, pricking he's been subjected to. I've had a couple of muscle biopsies, many MRI scans, x-rays. Blood seems to be drawn on a daily basis at the moment. Um, lots of urine samples having to be given, uh, monitoring my temperature, my activity, blood pressure cuffs for 24 hours, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's an awful lot going on. All those medical experiments are overseen by Dr. Volker Damon. He's head of the Space Medicine Office at ESA's Astronaut Training Centre in Cologne, Germany. Now, space isn't necessarily good for you. Uh, apart from an increase in blood pressure, when astronauts return to Earth after several months in space, we often see them being carried, and that's because their muscle mass has decreased quite severely. So I began by asking Volker how quickly this deterioration happened. Well, that's very quick. And you may have noticed it yourself. If you have a broken arm or whatever and you have a cast, 
uh, even within a couple of days and weeks, uh, you see that your arm, for example, gets slimmer and slimmer. So muscles are really adapting very quickly. So if we don't counteract this decline in muscle mass, then we have the situation that we even have to carry astronauts after the spaceflight, even after a couple of days. And when they get back to Earth, how long does it take to actually replace that muscle mass? Well, that really depends. If you would have an astronaut who is a couch potato and doesn't do anything in space, then indeed you would need uh, quite a significant time of uh, recovery. But since our astronauts are really doing about two hours of exercise in flight, we have a very quick recovery. It's within days. It's been quite well known that a a lot of experiments on the space station relate to bone. Why does the body lose bone mass? Well, many people think that bone is built once in your lifetime and that's it. And that's wrong. The bone is a very dynamic organ. It's rebuilt more or less on a daily, weekly basis, depending on the stresses, on the muscle pull, uh, on the sport activity, the impacts uh, while walking. And if you don't use something in your body, be it muscle or bone, the biology just removes it because it's unnecessary. And it's the same with the bone. So if you don't have the loads of walking upright, those areas of the bone that usually carry the weight are no longer used and therefore the bone is resorbed. And that's why we see in an astronaut a model of an aging person that we see in a very short amount of time the processes of the bone that are usually happening over 10 uh, years or 15 years in a terrestrial human being. Do you think, as, a, as an expert in this, that this is something that the human body can overcome for, say, the future trips, for human trips to Mars? Well, of course, evolution on Earth for every biological system happened always while gravity was present. So, of course, our biology is not built for weightlessness. That's something new. However, on the other side, it's amazing how adaptable uh, physiology and and the human body is. The problem is that we don't know, are certain effects stable, or do they have a linear relationship, for example, in bone? Uh, We know that roughly 1% to 2% of bone mass is reduced per month, so very significant. But we don't know, do we reach a plateau after six months or one year? Is it continuing? So are you really losing so much bone that you would have a broken bone when you set foot on Mars, for example? That's a worry. So that's why it's so interesting to now have a one-year mission in in, in space that's currently happening, uh, because then we can really follow, is there a trend? Is there a, a plateau? Is it a linear effect that we're continuously losing certain bone mass? So there are unknowns, but I'm very optimistic (laughs) that uh, the human physiology, the human body can adapt. Which would you say is the greatest threat? Is it the effect of space on the human body or radiation? It's of course a mix and don't forget psychology. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Being in a tin can for a a very long period of time uh, with limited resources, that may also have a very significant impact on on, on the mental well-being. Radiation is another big issue as long as we are still in low Earth orbit. Radiation is increased, but it's still manageable. If we go out into open space, uh, radiation will be most likely a limiting factor if we don't find uh, adequate ways to protect the crew from excessive radiation. So is it a question then maybe that we're also waiting for the technology, be it new design of space suits, for, for instance, new materials, or new materials for the spacecraft itself that still have to be light but, but could perhaps ward off or protect against radiation? 
It's even three factors. It's uh, finding shielding mechanisms. It's understanding better the uh, negative effects of radiation. There we are still in a gray zone and don't understand everything. And the other one is technology, but also rocket science, so to speak. If we get to Mars in a much quicker fashion with new engines that are currently under development, we are no longer talking about a 500-day trip to Mars. We may be back in 180 days. So the duration may be as long as a current long-duration spaceflight on ISS. So there are multiple elements that uh, need to fall into place to really get going with exploration. And would you say that out of radiation, the physiological effects and the psychological effects, which would you say is the most dangerous one for an astronaut, or difficult one, shall we say? I would say the radiation effect, because of the unknowns of also the effects not only to the individual, him or herself, but also for the next generation, so genetic effects if the astronaut still wants to have children after his space or her space flight. With all those uncertainties, technological challenges, I think that is, for me, the current limiting factor. Is it true that an astronaut's height will be different when they're in space as to when they come back down again? Yes, the gravitational pull when you're standing upright, of course, compresses uh, your body and your spine. Uh, And even if you yourself make a measurement in the morning and in the evening, you will see that there may be one to one and a half centimeters of difference, even here on, on Earth. So if you are now in in, in space, uh, there is no gravitational pull. You're not standing upright. So, of course, your your spine extends. So, indeed, the astronauts get a little bit taller. Volker Damon. And uh, one of the reasons Scott Kelly's year-long mission is is of such interest to doctors is because they've effectively got a control because Scott Kelly has an astronaut twin, Mark Kelly, and they can do that comparison. So after hearing all that, Sarah... Um, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Has that put you off? No, of course it does. <laughs> but it's interesting, yeah. it's interesting that there's people almost take space for granted and think you know, we can do all these amazing things, but there's so much more we still need to do, do and develop if we are going to get to Mars, or hopefully within our lifetimes. And it's just, it's very interesting to see that there are still limits, but exciting to see as people are starting to push them. So I'd like to go to space, absolutely, but I think it's a pretty scary place to be. It's not for everyone. It sounds like they need a force field, actually, because I like the way he added that it was technology as well Ooh. in order to shield the radiation. That was my first It'll thought, be a force field. interesting to see what happens with Bigelow Aerospace when the first inflatable habitat goes to the IS at some point next year, um, SpaceX depending, um, because that's 90s technology, or 60s technology when it's first thought of, but 90s when it's developed by NASA and then it was sold on to Bigelow um, and now it's going to the ISS, but because um, that protects you from radiation more and then there's the idea of if you were to mine an asteroid you could use the water from the asteroid um, because you then don't have to launch it into space as again protection from radiation so I think technology will meet the challenge because that's the wonderful thing about technology it always does meet challenges. Uh, David as an engineer I mean is this an engineering problem or are we just fundamentally an earthbound species? Uh, No, I think it is an engineering problem. Um, But it just reminds us how young this industry is, how much we still do need to resolve, how many problems there still are. The fact that they don't understand the radiation environment fully yet, how to protect from that. And as was mentioned, the psychology is still a very big unknown. That's something that you can't simulate. 
Well, next time in Space Boffins, we'll hear from a volunteer who's been spending two months lying in bed for science. And uh, also we've got... <laughs> I'll go uh, next. Yeah, oh, well, actually, it's not, it's not as fun as you'd think. Um, Doesn't and sound also, bad. We, we've got an interview on the uh, gory details of surgery in space. Well, it is, of course, the most wonderful time of the year. And one of the big downsides of being in space for Christmas is that you can't roast chestnuts on an open fire. Well, let's hope you don't get the opportunity anyway. Astronauts do, though, get a Christmas dinner. They get presents from Santa and even have a Christmas tree, a fireproof Christmas tree, I hasten to add, (laughs) which is on board the International Space Station. And messages from space have also become traditional. So here's a festive selection of some of our favourites. It's now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. from the International Space Station and the crew of ISS Expedition 26. Currently, we're orbiting the Earth at 17,500 miles an hour, over 200 miles above our beautiful planet that we should all be thankful to have as our home. Times are hard all over the world, but this is a time when we can all think about being together and treasuring our planet, and we have a pretty nice view of it up here. From up here, we see one world, one Earth, And uh, all together we should uh, celebrate this holiday. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Get a bit emotional there. Um, you heard their Christmas messages from Apollo 8 in orbit around the moon on Christmas Eve 1968. Uh, jingle bells from Gemini 6 in 1965. Uh, Skylab 4 from 1973. And Expedition 26 to the space station in 2010 uh, with Scott Kelly. Katie Coleman and Paolo Nespoli and of course Scott about to spend another Christmas on the ISS with Tim Peake. I like that, I really enjoyed that Christmas on space anyone? Oh you're never going to top Apollo 8 are you nothing, nothing nothing that's done throughout history because that was the first and it was Christmas and they orbited around the moon and and you've got that incredible picture of Earthrise um, and there's that whole idea of going into space, the overview effect and it makes you appreciate planet Earth and I think that picture of Earthrise from the moon is probably the best Christmas present anyone on Earth could have got because it's it's just changing. It's a great way. Well, I've got to say, that's a long way to go to avoid the family argument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it occurs to me also that Tim Peake will miss Star Wars. 
I'm sure I read on Twitter actually, oh, and astro- one of the astronauts currently on the space now, I'm sure they tweeted that they're getting, I think he said, I'm not sure what to look forward to next. The new Star Wars, or and it was some oh. sort of you know, Danger Mouse. It was some sort of new kids <laughs> movie or something. So they're obviously being sent what some films. I love most about his trip to the space station. He's going to have a special thing to make tea, so we can have a cup of Yorkshire tea on space, you know, proper tea. Um, so I think that's just it's such a British thing to be able to have. <laughs> well, that's space boffins for another year. Our thanks to our guest David Wade and also to Birthday Girl. Thank Sarah you. <laughs> space boffins is a boffin media production in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We are supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and also the Royal Astronomical Society. You can find and interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you want a a louder yay there? Yay! Yay. Yay. Best of luck to Tim Peake. Join us in 2016. And thanks for listening.